Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Let's pray. God, we ask for you to help us now as we study this passage together this morning, that we would hear your voice from your word, that you would keep us from error and lead us into the truth, and then help us live in light of those things which we are called to trust and obey. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There are two strong emotions that bring people together. One is love, and the other is hate. Obviously, uniting around love is far better than uniting around hate. True love comes from God. With love comes patience, kindness, gentleness, and joy. Love is also commanded by Jesus to his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 35, a new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then, in, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that between faith, hope, and love, that love is the greatest. Love is a powerful, powerful unifier. Yet, even with its brutal, destructive, divisive despair, hatred can also powerfully unite people together. Even people who have a vastly different outlook on life and vastly different motives. And that's what we find in our text for today. People united in their hate. There are two groups mentioned in our text today, and they could not have been more different from one another. The Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, they were nationalists. They were all for Israel. And they opposed the Roman culture that was being blended in with their, with their Jewish background and their Jewish faith. The Herodians, on the other hand, welcomed the change that Rome had brought. The Pharisees, were very strict when it came to following God's laws. But the Herodians, they were more liberal, mixing religious beliefs of other countries in with their own. The Pharisees were against Herod. They despised Rome. 
Herod wasn't a natural-born Jew, so they didn't like that about him either. But the Herodians, as their name suggests, loved Herod and supported Rome. Despite their opposing views, they were cemented together by a common hatred. They hated Jesus. And their hatred for our Lord surpassed their hatred for one another. And so they banded together to trap him. I suppose that if you hate something enough, you'll even partner together with people that you hate in order to take that thing down. And that's what we see. The Pharisees had an agenda. It was a religious agenda. The Herodians had an agenda. It was a political agenda. And both groups were afraid that Jesus was going to ruin their respective agendas. And so both groups wanted him dead. They were seething with hate because Jesus, Jesus was a tough opponent. He had just defeated a group from the Sanhedrin that had come to question his authority, turning their question back on themselves and condemning them in their hypocrisy. So they would have been devastatingly, they would have to be devastatingly devious as they approached Jesus this time because they knew that he was a tough person to crack. They couldn't allow him to squirm out of the trap once again. And so they decided, they got their heads together and they decided, okay, we'll ask him a question. And the question has to be framed in such a way that it's yes or no, that way he can't get out of it. He'll either have to answer yes or no, and then we'll catch him. It'll put Jesus in a dilemma. Now, as I was preparing this message, I kept reading that Jesus was going to be uh, gored on the horns of a dilemma. And I'll be real honest with you, it took me until the very end of all of my preparation to even figure out, I mean, I'd kind of heard that before, but to figure out what it meant, it meant that no matter which way Jesus answers, he's going to get the horn. <laughs> he's impaled on one horn or the other. There's two horns, and he's, he's going to get impaled by one of them. So they thought. They were trying to trap him in his words, is what verse 13 tells us. So, if he answered one way, he'd be in trouble with the Jews. That's one horn. And if he answered the other way, he'd be in trouble with the Romans. That's the other horn. And they thought that it was a foolproof question. So they came to Jesus while he was teaching in the temple to ask this, what they thought was a brilliant question. And while Jesus was teaching in the temple, this odd alliance begins to approach. They're getting ready to bait the trap. And by the way, if there's two people, groups of people that hate each other and they also hate you and you see both of them coming at you together, that's a red flag. All right? Just watch out for that. But as they stood before him, they say, Teacher, we know you're truthful and don't care what anyone partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. And then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, I've trapped a lot of things in my life. And the key to trapping something is to make sure that you're using the right bait. For instance, groundhogs love sweet apples. Squirrels, whole peanuts, pecans, Or even corn on the cob. Dried corn on the cob. Not the stuff you just cooked, right? Okay. 
And believe it or not, I've had really great success trapping raccoons using rancid tuna. Open up the can, let it sit for a week, they come running. They love it. And possums, they like to munch on processed meats like hot dogs or bologna or something like that, spam. But you have to be careful with the tuna and with the meat because you might just catch the neighbor's cat. Not that I know that from personal experience or anything. But notice how this odd alliance tries to trap Jesus. What do they bait their trap with? Flattery. And the Bible has a lot to say about flattery, and none of it is good. Psalm 5, verse 9, For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Or Proverbs 26, verse 28, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth causes ruin. Or what about Proverbs uh, 29, verse 5, A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And I think this one best describes what's happening in our situation this morning with Jesus. They're flattering Jesus, spreading a net for his feet that he might get tripped up in what he says. And the word for trap in verse 13 is used only here in the New Testament. And it means to, to pursue or capture by hunting or fishing. And it describes a violent pursuit of the prey that you're after. So Jesus here is being hunted like an animal. And they hope to entrap him in a slip of the tongue or some kind of public gaffe that will enable them to take him down finally and be rid of him altogether. And we know nobody does this today, right? Nobody ever tries to trip anybody up in their words. I've never seen that on the news, any reporters or nothing, right? That never happens anymore. No, of course this happens. We can identify that with this because this is something that still goes on today. Try and trip people up in their words. And so look at what they do to Jesus to bait the trap. First, they call Jesus teacher. It was a title of great honor and great respect. Yet even though they called him teacher, they weren't interested in learning anything from him. Not even a little bit. And next, they tell him that they know that he's truthful or true. And the word describes someone who speaks and lives with integrity. They're constantly, annoyingly the same all the time. Never varying in anything, privately or publicly. They have integrity. They're not deceptive in any way. That's what truthful or true means. And then they say that Jesus does not show partiality, that he's impartial, and that he doesn't change his mind based on what other people think about him. In fact, he doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. His only purpose and the motivation for everything that he does is to teach the Word of God and the way of God truthfully. And so they, they say all these very flattering words to Jesus, but it drips with mockery. Oh, Jesus, we know this and that about you. We know that you're the greatest thing since parchment paper. It's the first century. They didn't have a lot of innovations then, okay? That's all. You know, we say the greatest thing since the iPhone or maybe sliced bread or, or individually wrapped cheese slices, but they had just come out with parchment paper. That's the best thing they had, okay? It's all, all flattery, all mockery. 
But the ironic twist is that what they were mocking Jesus for, it's actually true about him. It's actually true about Jesus. Jesus is a man of absolute integrity. He's not biased or prejudiced in any way. He always teaches God's truth and won't be puffed up with pride because of flattery. Thus, he cannot be trapped by their question. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And we know that the wisdom of God is never tripped up by the foolishness of men. Charles Spurgeon gives wise advice about flattery. He says this, Whenever a man begins to flatter you, be on your guard against him. If he tries to commence a conversation with you by uttering words of excessive admiration, depend upon it that he admires something that you have more than he admires you. And therefore, be on your watch against him. Our Savior must, in his heart, have utterly despised men who were so foolish as to imagine that they could entrap him by their flattering words. So after baiting this trap with flattery, they spring the trap with a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It's a pretty good question, I think. And a question that they thought only had two responses. Yes or no. So no matter how he answers, they believe he's trapped. Now, if you think that taxes were a hot-button issue today, they were explosive back then. The specific tax that's in question here, the word that's used here is it's the poll tax or the head tax. It's a tax that you paid for simply existing on earth. Each Jewish family returned to their town of origin, their hometown, in order to be counted, in order to pay the tax. And if that sounds familiar, it should. Because that's exactly what Joseph does in Luke chapter 2 when he heads from Nazareth to Bethlehem with the very pregnant Mary. This tax began in 6 AD when Caesar Augustus was ruling. Men aged 14 to 65 and women aged 12 to 62 were required to pay this tax which amounted to one denarius, and one denarius was the equivalent of one day's pay. So imagine you work for a day, and all that money that you made that day goes to pay this tax. That's what was happening here. Now both the Pharisees and the Herodians believed that it was right to pay taxes, but the common people at that time didn't. The common people resented paying taxes. I mean, who likes to pay taxes, right? Anybody here love paying their taxes? No, we usually don't. But this tax was particularly hated, not because of the amount of the tax, but because it was a symbol of the foreign domination of Rome. And the coin itself was an abomination to the Jews. See, what would happen in ancient times is that when a nation would overtake another nation, they would immediately mint new coins. And the old coins were worthless. And the new coins became what was uh, the currency that would be used. It was a sign of the power of the new emperor, the new king. 
And the, and the power was measured by the distance in which the coin was valued. So as far as you could go and still use that coin to pay, that's how much power that ruler had. And we kind of see this a little bit, I think if I remember my history correctly, during the Civil War, the, the money from the, was it the South, the, um, the Confederate money became no longer valuable and couldn't be used to pay for anything. And so we even, we even see that in some of our more modern history. This coin in particular would have the profile of Tiberius because he was the, he was the, uh, the Caesar at the time, and it would ha- have his inscription on it. Now, coins were used for more than just uh, to pay something. They were also used as propaganda. And so on one side of the coin, it read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, there was a female figure seated on a throne wearing a crown, holding an inverted spear in her in one hand and an olive branch in another. And the superscription there read, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. And so the coin was proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. It was saying that Tiberius was divine, that he was a god, and that he was the high priest. This coin also reminded the conquered people of the peace that Rome bought. Maybe you've heard Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it put the whole world at the time in subjugation to Caesar. It was in effect, this coin was in effect, a portable idol that proclaimed pagan ideology. Now the Romans didn't actually collect this tax themselves because then people would have really hated it. Instead, they hired Jewish men to collect the tax for them. Like Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples. Well, he was a former tax collector. Now he's a disciple of Jesus. And the tax collectors were resented. They were seen as traitors. And they also hated them because they would squeeze extra money out of them to line their own pockets. This tax and this coin was so offensive that it sparked a revolt by a man named Judas of Galilee. And his name even makes it into the Bible in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. The coin and the tax was a consistent reminder of the oppression of Rome. They had some freedoms, but they were not really free because Rome ruled over them. They'd been taken over and large sums of their money were being taken from them. At least that was the mindset of the common person. And so they spring the trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes? If Jesus says yes, then everybody sees him as Rome's lackey. And they will think of him no better than the tax collectors and the sinners. And he'll lose all the respect of all of the common folks. And if he says no, they'll see him as an insurrectionist, just like Judas of Galilee. And the Roman authorities will see him as an insurrectionist and they will arrest him. And just a quick lesson here. You're going to have times in your life when people will argue with you about something in the Bible or a theological truth. And they're going to present you a question with an either-or answer. 
and they will want you to answer it that way. They'll give you two options, and they'll want you to pick one of those two options. I run into this all the time. People will say something like, if, uh, if God is all-powerful, then he can't be loving, because look at all of the evil in the world. But if God is all-loving, then he must not be all-powerful, because look at all the evil in the world. So which is it? And it's really, it's not a good question. It's an unfair question, because it's pitting two things together that, that don't oppose one another. It's an unfair question. Maybe you've heard a question in your philosophy classes or philosophy things that you have heard that says, have you stopped beating your wife? Right? That would be an unfair question. Have you stopped beating your wife? If you answer yes, then you have admitted that you once beat your wife. If you say no, then you're admitting that you still beat your wife. The real response is an answer that has not been posed by the question. I have never beat my wife at any time, ever. And that's what Jesus does. He avoids the snare by a third answer. By rejecting the proposition of their question, he answers it in a way that will blow their minds. They thought they had him backed into a corner. But Jesus was not going to be manipulated by their scheme. We are told that Jesus knew their hypocrisy, and then he used that hypocrisy as a snare. And we're going to see that in just a moment, what that hypocrisy was. Jesus asks for a coin. And the coin that he asked for was the one that the poll tax was paid with, the denarius. And remember, it's offensive to the common Jewish person. It's a sign of idolatry. It's a sign of Roman rule. And the Pharisees, they just reach into their pocket and grab one and hand it to him. They had it on their person. This sign of subjugation and idolatry where Caesar describes himself as divine, they just have one in their pocket. They're carrying it around. And so they produce this coin for Jesus. And I'm sure that he's smirking at this point. And he asked, whose inscription's on that? Whose image? Whose likeness? And they, with a one-word answer, say, Caesar's. Because I think that they were starting, they were sharp guys, I think they were starting to put together what Jesus was getting ready to do to them. And they knew that they had been foiled. Since they were carrying Caesar's coin and using Caesar's coin, they were admitting that Caesar had some authority over them. And that was their hypocrisy. And since they had no qualms about doing business with Caesar's money, they had better pay taxes back to Caesar. Jesus makes them look foolish. He makes them look ungodly. Because no no truly righteous Israelite would want to carry an idol in their pocket. Well, then Jesus gives the most masterful response. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Because the coin had the king's head on the, and his inscription on it, his head and his inscription, people thought, at least in some sense, that it was his property. So, since the coin already belongs to Caesar, just give it back to him. Now, by this reply, Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. 
Jesus is not an insurrectionist. He's not there to start a political uprising. The Bible teaches that God has ordained many things like life and salvation, the family, the church, and the government. The government provides service. It provides security for our lives. They build infrastructure and they make and they enforce laws. Thus, government has the right to levy taxes and we have the responsibility to pay them. Peter and Paul continue to talk about this. First, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, it says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does, who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of the wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those who you owe taxes, tolls to those who you owe tolls, respect to those who you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said, isn't it? Or what about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-6? through 6? First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And so there's three, Jesus, Paul, and Paul. Now let's go with what Peter said in 1 Peter 2. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's pretty clear what's being said here in Scripture. And all of it comes together to simply mean that as Christians we do have a responsibility to the government. So long as they don't interfere with our ability to honor and worship and live for God, we should obey them. So, and I'll tell you this too, if the, if the governing authorities came out with a rule or a law that was in defiance of God's rule or law, I'd be the first one to break that rule. In fact, I even said that early on during all of this stuff, that if they banned churches but opened everything else, that I would start extra services 
and y'all should have some bail money ready for me because I'm going to go to prison. But so long as it doesn't contradict the law of God, so long as it doesn't go against his will or our ability to honor and worship him, then we should obey because it's our biblical duty as Christians to do so. But Jesus doesn't stop there. If he had, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they wouldn't have had anything really to argue with about. But he stings them both with the second part of his response. And to God, the things that are God's. Thus, sidestepping the snare, sidestepping the snare and taking a third answer, which we're told left them utterly amazed in verse 17. Since the coin has, I'm, I'm trying to bring this all together now, okay? Since the coin has Caesar's image on it and his inscription, his likeness and image, then it belongs to him. And so Jesus says, give back to him what is rightfully his. It has his inscription, it has his image, give it back to him. But as humans, what likeness and image do we bear? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So whose image and likeness do we bear as humans? the image and likeness of God. We bear the image of God. It is stamped into our souls. And like the image and likeness of Caesar is stamped into the coin, the image and likeness of God is stamped into you. And this means that each and every one of us should give to God what is rightfully His. Our very life. Our whole life. You give to Caesar money because his image and inscription is on it. But we give to God ourselves because our life, our very being is stamped with his image and likeness. We may have a duty to the government, but we have an even greater duty to God. He made us. He saved us. And exactly what we owe to God will become clear in just a few more verses. Look down at verse 30. In, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. And then verse 33. And to love Him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and, with all, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. We owe God everything. We owe Him our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That's what we're supposed to give back to Him. We give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and we are to give to God what belongs to God. And we see this principle in action. In Acts chapter 4, verses 19-20, through 20, Peter and John are, are in front of this Tribunal, and they're having to give a response for why they keep telling people about Jesus 
even though they were told not to. The government officials said, don't follow Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus. And they say, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. But we're unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. They were going to listen to God. Their greater allegiance was to God and not the government. And so they obeyed him, they obeyed God rather than government at that point. And with this one simple answer, Jesus puts everything into its proper perspective. He puts Caesar in his place and he placed God where he rightfully belongs in our life as king on the throne. And all the people could do when they heard Jesus' answer was stand back and look with amazement. You see, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were doing fine on the first part. They were supporting the government, all that kind of stuff, but they had lost sight of the second part, that in them was stamped the image of God and they owed God everything. While they might owe Caesar a tribute, they owed God their life. So, what should we think as we begin to wrap up? First, I think that we need to remember that, that we bear the image of God and not the image of the state. I don't even know how we would do that in Missouri. Two bears on a flag. I don't even, I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, Right? We have God's image, not the state's, not the government's image placed on our life. And so our sole allegiance should be to God. When we pledge allegiance, our pledge should be to the Lord and His rule and His reign in our life. And He deserves our obedience. Also, God holds our souls in His hand. What's the worst that Caesar can do to you? can audit you, that might feel like death, right? (laughs) If you're really bad and break a capital offense kind of law, they'll kill you. But most people never face that. It might make your life difficult or hard or frustrating at times. But God is almighty. And even if you face the worst punishment by the government here, they can never throw your soul into hell. But God can. He can cast our eternal soul into hell where Mark 9.48 says, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Think about, for just a moment, the everlasting and eternal quality of God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting punishment will be awful because God is eternal and His punishment towards sin is eternal. But the reward for obedience will be awesome because God is eternal and His reward for those who are faithful and obey is an eternal reward. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God 
the things that are God's. Paying taxes might make your life a little bit better while you're here on earth. It brings better roads, fire service, police protection, and many other things. But serving God gives you an eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. As Christians, we have only one God, and His name is Jesus. And as Christians, we long for the one and only kingdom that is the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us that we're, that we're sojourners, that we're just passing through, and that our kingdom and our final place is in heaven. And so we long for that day. We look for that day with anticipation and with hope. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says this, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And even though we pay a small tribute today, to the, govern, to the governing authorities in our lives. One day, their rule and their reign will be deposed by the King of glory. And He will take over and He will rule on His throne with justice and fairness forever and ever. And it's going to be an exciting and incredible day. And it's a day that I cannot wait for. And I look for it with anticipation because I know the hope and peace that it will bring, not only in my life, but in all of our lives who trust Him. And so I encourage you, I encourage you to take this message of the hope in the One to come who will reign forever and ever to our community, to your friends and to your family. They're looking for something that is greater than what they can see in front of them and and some of the wickedness that they see out in the systems of our world. But you can let them know that those things are passing away. For a heavenly king and a heavenly kingdom. And I can't wait for that day because I know that I will be there. That I will spend my eternity in heaven because I have placed my faith and trust in Christ alone. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Christ came into this earth and He lived a perfect life. I couldn't live a perfect life. I'm full of sin. But He lived a perfect life. And then He died in my place on the cross. I deserved that death. But He died it for me. And the Bible teaches us that it's by His blood that we are forgiven, that we are healed, that we are made right with God. And so His sacrifice provides the payment that we need, the payment that we couldn't pay so that our sins would be wiped away and that we could have a right relationship with God. And it says that if we trust in Him and if we believe in Him and if we repent and call on His name, that we can be saved. And then we can have this same peace and hope that even, even with the craziness that goes on in our world with Caesars of our world, that we have a greater king coming. 
And we can have peace today knowing that it isn't going to end for us terribly, but it will end for us in the glory of God. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.